Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, because we don't have uh, children's church this morning and we have uh, everyone in here together, uh, we're going to try to keep this a little bit shorter um, than usual. But before we go our separate ways and, and celebrate uh, Christmas with family, uh, we want to gather together as church family um, just for a few minutes and discuss the reason for the season. And so unlike the other three gospel writers, uh, Matthew begins his biography of Jesus Christ with a genealogy. He traces Jesus' family back 42 generations to show a few things. One, that Jesus is the son of Abraham, which means he is the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 12 to bless all nations through the bloodline of Father Abraham. Also, he's the son of David, which means he's the fulfillment of God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 to raise up a ruler from the house of David who will reign over an eternal kingdom. And most importantly, he's the son of God, which means he's the ultimate fulfillment of every single one of God's promises in the Old Testament. He is the better Adam. He is the final prophet, priest, and king. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And we see this at the end of chapter 1, when, when Matthew records a visit from a heavenly messenger, an angel of the Lord, who appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him, don't fear. Probably easier said than done in that moment, but don't fear. Take Mary as your wife. For that which conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. A.W. Tozer once wrote, Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on a cross, and rose from a grave to make worshipers out of rebels. During every Christmas season, we can easily get wrapped up in other things, pun intended, a little bit. And we should savor the family traditions. We should enjoy the holiday parties, the giving and receiving of gifts, the high-calorie desserts, the classic movies, the lights and decorations. We should enjoy all of it. But we must remember... Above everything else, Christmas is a call to worship King Jesus. And as we turn to the next chapter, that's exactly what we see happen. You'll notice that Matthew skips ahead a little bit. Uh, Luke chapter 2 fills in the gaps on the census from Caesar Augustus, the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem by Joseph and Mary, the birth of Jesus in a manger, the worship of the heavenly host, and the visit of the shepherds. But for his part, Matthew moves past all that, and he focuses on the arrival of a group of foreigners who we commonly call the wise men. Or most often we call them the three wise men, and they brought three gifts, but there may have been more or less of them. So let's start reading in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, 
saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now we aren't provided with any more information on these wise men. They are one-hit wonders in the biblical canon. They pop up here in Matthew 2 and then we never see them again. Over the last 2,000 years, many have speculated about their background, but we must remember that Christmas tradition isn't always historically accurate. For example, there's a line in the song Away in a Manger, which says the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now I've had three babies in my house. I can't fathom a situation where a newborn would wake up in the middle of the night next to a cow and offer zero reaction. I don't buy it. But I digress. So we don't know a lot about these men. We do get a few details about them. First, we know they came from the east. Obviously, from the east is is really vague. If I told you, I'm from the east, you would have follow-up questions. Okay, but where? Are you from Waycross? Are you from Savannah? Are you from Brunswick or St. Mary's or one of a few dozen other places? So we don't have a lot to go on there. One common guess is that they came from Babylon because the Israelites were previously exiled there. The theory is, during the Jewish exile, the Babylonians became familiar with Jewish teaching. Maybe the wise man maintained a scroll or remembered a story about the coming Messiah. When they saw the star, they traveled west. So we know their their general location, but we can't really narrow it down. So we know they came from the east. Second, we know they were high-ranking government officials. They weren't isolated stargazers. They weren't two-bit magicians. They weren't gypsy wanderers. They were prominent religious and political figures. There's two reasons for coming to that conclusion. One, they brought some expensive gifts. I can't speak personally about the fair market value of frankincense and myrrh 2,000 years ago, but I can say that any person coming into possession of all three of the things listed would be a person of means. It would be difficult for the average person to acquire these things. And also, they apparently brought an impressive caravan. Their traveling party was so imposing, they caused such a stir in Jerusalem, they were provided a royal audience with King Herod. So we know they came from the east. We know they were high-ranking government officials. And then third, we know they came after the birth of Jesus. We're explicitly told this in Scripture, and yet most manger scenes that we see have them there. But they weren't there. They came later. Look down at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child. Not the baby. The child. Now this isn't a call for you to go to your next door neighbor's manger scene that has three wise men in it and kick them down and then tell them that their theology is wrong. It's just a point that you may want to know. Now, we can make educated guesses that by the time the wise men arrived, Jesus was around 12 or 18 months old. And so we know they came from the east. 
We know they were high-ranking government officials. We know they came after the birth of Jesus. And then finally, we know they came to worship Him. We know the most important thing about them. They came to worship Him. Verse 2, Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star and we came to worship Him. And before we look at the specific nature of their worship, Matthew tells a little bit about the other side of the spectrum. Two other reactions to the announcement of the arrival of this new king. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. See, Herod was threatened by Jesus. In 40 BC, so 40 years before Christ was born, the Roman Senate appointed Herod the king of Israel. And he was put in that position by military force. And he essentially served as a puppet for the Roman government. By all accounts, he was a wicked tyrant who clung to his authority with a white-knuckle grip. He destroyed anyone who threatened his position, even some members of his own family. Augustus Caesar reportedly said of Herod, it would be better to be his dog than his son. So naturally, he was not overjoyed to have a, a group of foreign men come into his palace and ask him, where is the king of the Jews? Herod is thinking, I'm the king of the Jews. No, no, where is the actual king of the Jews? You know, Herod was certainly disturbed by that phrase, born king, that this Jesus was not elected, selected, anointed, or appointed for a future seat on the throne. He was born king. Just as Isaiah foretold, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. You go down to verse 7. After Herod called together a, a think tank and gathered some more information, and we'll talk about them in a minute, he called the wise men back. He summoned them secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod portrayed kindness, but he intended evil. Later in this chapter, it becomes clear that he's already plotting against Jesus. Now I realize, since you're sitting in a worship service on Christmas Eve, you don't share Herod's hatred of Jesus. But I would remind you that it's easy to call on Christ as your Savior, but it's much more difficult to submit to Him as your Lord. See, the reason that, Herod, that Jesus was a threat to Herod is because Herod thought Jesus was coming for his throne. And when Jesus becomes your Lord, you put him on the throne. 
of your life. You, you cling to his truth. You follow his commands. You serve his purposes. You spread his message. You surrender to his will. In other words, you do what Herod was unwilling to do. You vacate the throne. And so Herod was threatened by Jesus. And the religious leaders of Israel, who Herod called on, they were indifferent towards Jesus. Verse 4 says that, that Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So in response to the question from the wise men, Herod assembled the finest religious scholars in all of Israel. The chief priests were supposed to be the experts on the worship of God, but they were mostly corrupt, religious-oriented politicians. The scribes were supposed to be the authority on the law, but they were mostly self-righteous hypocrites. And so Herod comes to them and asks, where is the king supposed to come from? According to the scriptures, where will the Messiah be born? And what's interesting is, they don't have to look it up. They don't say, hey, does anyone have a scroll handy? Does anyone have a copy of Isaiah? Can, can we consult the scriptures and, and get back to you in a couple days, King Herod? How does that sound? No, they knew the answer. They quoted Micah 5. They told him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. It is written by the prophets. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And we should note that skeptics claim Jesus and his followers manipulated certain events so his life would line up with prophecy. But how can you explain the location of his birth aligning perfectly with a 700-year-old prediction from the prophet Micah? You want to talk about something that you have no control over? How about the place where you were born? And yet, even though the religious leaders saw this clear connection to Old Testament prophecy, they weren't moved towards action. When the wise men left, they didn't go with them. They didn't even send an intern to go check things out. They were indifferent. They were apathetic. And their attitude towards Christ reminds us that you can know a lot about God without knowing God. You can acquire a great deal of head knowledge without experiencing heart change. And as the gospel progresses, their indifference will morph into hostility. But for now, their vast knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures does little to draw their hearts towards the one foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. So Herod was threatened by Jesus, plotted against him. 
the religious leaders were indifferent towards Jesus and largely ignored him. But the wise men searched for Jesus and worshipped him. The wise men were worshipping him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. In these verses, we see the proper response, the proper reaction to the birth of a king. The wise men were worshiping him. And at the risk of sounding corny, wise men still worship him. Notice their attention was immediately on the child. They didn't come to pay respects to a royal family. They came to worship the king. And I want to quickly highlight two characteristics of their worship. One, they worshiped joyfully. They worshiped joyfully. Apparently, at some point in their journey, the star which had been leading their path to Jerusalem disappeared. But after their meeting with Herod, it returned and, and led, led them directly to Jesus. And when they saw the star back in the sky, Scripture says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They experienced quadruple Joy. They had joy to the fourth power. It would have been one thing to say they rejoiced. It would have been more to say they rejoiced with joy, even more to say they rejoiced with great joy. But Matthew says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Their joy was not passive. Their joy was not reserved. Their joy was not nonchalant. Their joy was not over people or possessions. Their joy was found in the newborn king. And for some of you, you don't have any problem finding joy in Christmas. This season always brings you to a place of joy. You know, my wife contends that Thanksgiving is a day, but Christmas is a season. So when the clock strikes midnight on October 31st, the Washburns morph into the Griswolds. Decorations start to go up and, and presents start to be purchased and Amazon packages start appearing and appearing and appearing. Many of you are the same way. You don't struggle to get up for Christmas. But for others, for one reason or another, the Christmas season is not marked with joy or, or has not been marked with joy this year. It's been defined by busyness, awkwardness, loss, pain, guilt, sorrow, despair. Maybe you're 
seeing tradition shift in your family. Maybe you've been overwhelmed with endless tasks. Or maybe you're going through your first Christmas without a loved one. And there are times when the circumstances of life put a damper on the season. But in this season, and every season, we are called to fight for joy. We can't let anyone or anything rob us of our delight over the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so no matter how we feel in the moment, we sing, long lay the world in sin and error pining, till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. You know, I've heard the Christian life compared to a, a man discovering that he inherited a hundred million dollars from an uncle who he didn't know. And on the way to pick up the check, his car breaks down. And so the question is, if you're this man and you have this inheritance waiting for you, do you get out of the car and, and shake your fist at God? Do you complain? Do you grumble? Or do you wash your hands of the car and, and walk to your destination? Listen, if it's me, I'm skipping the rest of the way. And then I'm paying off my house note and I'm paying off the church note. I wouldn't be phased by a temporary setback because I would be overjoyed by the giant check in my near future. So wherever you are this Christmas, if you're in Christ, your current situation pales in comparison to your future inheritance. They worshipped joyfully. And two, they worshipped sacrificially. Verse 11 continues, In opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The gold emphasized his royalty. It was a gift worthy of kings. The frankincense emphasized his deity. It was presented to priests to offer to God during sacrificial worship. When it was burned, it symbolized the offering of worship heading towards the heavens as a sweet aroma to God. And the myrrh emphasized his humanity. It's easily the most mysterious gift of the three because it was generally used to prepare a dead body for burial. And on the surface, that seems like a strange gift for a toddler. But the myrrh was a look into his future. It was a reminder that this Jesus left the majesty and splendor of heaven for the brokenness and filth of the world. He took on human flesh. He dwelt among us. 
He was born in a manger. He slept in an ordinary, insignificant cradle. This Jesus set aside his rights, privileges, and powers as the Son of God. He veiled his glory to live in scarcity, to suffer as an outsider, to serve and not be served, to follow his Father's plan by being obedient to the point of death on a brutal cross. This Jesus took the sins of the world and nailed them to that cross. He was dead and buried, but he didn't stay in the tomb. He overcame the grave and became the firstborn among many brothers. He appeared to all the disciples in his resurrected body. He established the church on earth, and then he ascended to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he was highly exalted by the Father, where he received a name above every other name, from the Father, where He once and for all traded the cross for a crown. And scripture tells us, one day, soon and very soon, He will return. And when He does, every knee will bow, every tongue will will confess. Every being in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will worship. So church, let's get a head start on doing what we will do for all eternity. Let's worship the King. Would you pray with me?